Thanks for spending time with Fusion Community Church through our podcast. These can be accessed anytime through iTunes or on our website, fusioncommunity.church. We hope you enjoy today's message from Pastor Andrew Fetter. Well, hey, last week we kicked off this new series looking at the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. And uh, this grand image the Apostle Paul gives us, capturing the vision, the scope of the church, identifying who we are, that the church would become the body of Jesus, his hands, his feet, his knees, his elbows, his little finger, right? And we're, we're called as the body of Christ to fill everything in every way with Jesus himself. What does that really look like? We're going to unpack that over these next five weeks together. So think back with me. At the very beginning of Scripture, all the way back in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, we, we read this idea given by God in a poetic narrative about the arrival of, of the first human beings on the planet, Adam and Eve. That they're created in the image of God. That that they're exclusive compared to anything else that had been been created to carry the image of God into the world he created. But sin enters the picture not, not long after it. And the image of God is distorted, perverted, broken. And the only hope going forward is that one day the image of God somehow, some way in humanity could be redeemed. That it could be restored back to God's original intention. And then Jesus the Messiah shows up, a new Adam, a perfect man who lives the life Adam did not, who lives the life we did not, a life without sin. And Jesus dies in our place as the spotless lamb for our salvation. Then he overcomes the grave. He rises again. Then he sends his spirit to dwell within us in in his believing children. And the image of God in men and women is restored. But more than just being restored, it comes with it, the power of God's Spirit to live it out. Because Jesus is now being carried in the fullness of God into everything, everywhere through the body of Christ. And through Christ, we do this in His strength, in His power, because His Spirit is within us. But there's something we have to remember. In referring to the church, Paul's not talking about a building, even though we just talked about expanding space for our youth ministry. He isn't talking about an organization. He isn't talking about a denomination. Paul is talking about a church with a chest cavity that goes out and in as it takes breaths. A church that that has a pulse when you put your finger on the wrist. A church that's alive, that's actually been brought back from death to life and has been resurrected. A people of God. And our culture, both inside the church and outside of the church, we often lose sight of this understanding. And we do it consciously, but we also do it subconsciously, right? We say things like, uh, don't forget guys, Sunday we're going to church. As if it's a place we go and be, rather than the identity of who we are. Or we say, hey, um, you know, hey, we're getting together for a small group, so let's all meet at the church. Because we just subconsciously refer to it as a location with an address. Or even when we give directions, which we don't do a lot anymore, because we let you know, those little devices do it for us. But it's like, yeah, if you go straight on that road, you'll, you'll go past the Baptist church, and you'll go past the Methodist church. And when you get to the Lutheran church, you want to turn, turn left. Like They're just like places on a map somewhere. But Jesus and Paul refer to the organic, living, breathing body of Christ when we often refer to the church in in just a subconscious way as like this dead, stationary, immovable, boring building that is actually slowly deteriorating. Now, buildings are incredibly helpful, but a building is simply a tool for the church to use for ministry. It's not to be the central focus of who we are or to define us. And that tool that the church uses in a building has to change over time. There was a time in history... 
Uh, a thousand years ago, where churches were primarily, they were all, church buildings were built out of stone because it was the most reliable material. It took a very long time. It was very difficult to build. And, and those that still stand are like incredible pieces of art and history. Many centuries later, uh, all of a sudden, churches in a lot of church buildings in a lot of small communities began to add gas lanterns and they would hold evening worship services. This was a brand new thing. They would hold brand, evening worship services in their buildings because they were often in small communities the first place that would be illuminated after the sun went down. And people would come to check out this brand new technology that was so amazing before there was electricity. There was also a time in, in the lifetimes of some that are even here where the thought or the idea of hanging a television screen on the wall of a church building would have been seen as sacrilegious. What purpose, what use would you do to bring something like that from the culture? How could it be used as a tool for ministry? And so this is one of the reasons for the video you just saw, why we're expanding the facility to dedicate space exclusively for students in junior high and senior high, for them to get to call their own, for them to put their own creative energy into. And I hope that getting to hear from some of the students as well as some of the adults that serve the students consistently, your spirit's encouraged, motivated, inspired to just ask God what he would how he would have you to respond. Maybe God is calling you to give and maybe you can give a little and that's great. That'll help me to need. Maybe you, God's calling you to give and you can give quite a bit. Maybe God's saying not to give. You know, sometimes God says give. Sometimes he says, no, not now. Or, or I have it for you to give some other direction. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm just telling you to ask God. Because for some of you, God may not say, he may say, no, don't give money. I want you to give yourself to this ministry. He may say, I, I want you to give yourself to a group of teenagers whose lives you can get to impact, but they're going to change your life as well. As was said in the video, we need to feel a sense of urgency to engage young people with what's true about who God is and about what God has done so that their identity and their worldview can be shaped by the one who created them, that his voice could be the loudest voice in their life. Not so their identity can be shaped by their own imagination. Not so their identity can be shaped by their desires or temptations, because we see a lot of that going on. Not so their identity can be shaped by their fears, what they're afraid of, what they're afraid of others, that might, what they might say of them, what they might think of them. We want them to know what God says about them, that that's the defining characteristic of who they are. We don't want them to build their identity based on the ways they've been wounded, you know, there's scars and wounds. Some of us as adults, we could probably look back to moments in our lives that we were wounded and, and how we saw ourselves changed. We want to help young people understand that there's some things that never change about who we are and those are only found connected to God. And we don't want them to form their identity based on the messages being presented in a dark, broken world at what they value, which is often at odds with, with what God values. In fact, the chapter of the Bible we're looking at closely today, Ephesians chapter 2, speaks directly about who we are. It's a chapter filled with identity language from the authority of God, the one who created us, the one who hardwired us, the one who redeems us in Jesus. He declares who we are in Christ. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and starting in verse 1. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Hear the identity language there? This is who you were because of this. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world. Now, this identifies what we already found in Ephesians chapter 1. The audience Paul is writing to is believers. He's not writing to a lost, broken world. He's writing to people who have already settled where their faith lies in the death and resurrection of Jesus, in their redemption through faith. 
You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. This is a powerful statement by Paul. Paul's saying that if someone is, if the fruit of their life is disobedience to God, then behind the scenes, the spirit of the devil is at work. There's a spiritual war happening. He says, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature, our flesh, the the cravings of our bodies. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. Don't miss that. Only by God's grace, not by your effort, not by your works. In verse 8, he says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. How often do you look in the mirror and tell yourself, you're a masterpiece? Right? We can claim that truth, not because we believe it or think it. Because God declares it. We believe it in faith. It's not because we believe it about ourselves. It's because we believe the word of God and what he declares over us is true. Now, each week in this series, we're kind of looking at a shift we have to make if we want to live our lives experiencing the John 10.10 promise, which I referenced in, in prayer, this promise of more, right? Come to give you life, give it more abundantly. More abundantly than we can experience. If we go down our own road with our life, there's a limit to how much joy and pleasure and enjoyment and delight we can experience. And all of it's going to be fleeting. All of it's going to leak. The only place, the only source of enduring satisfaction and joy and pleasure is in relationship to God, the more and better life he's promised us. So last week we talked about the shift we needed to to make in Ephesians 1, moving from more effort to more Jesus. And it's this idea that so often we get caught up in our works that I've just got to try harder for God. i got to try to pray more, and i got to try to read the Bible more, and i got to try to be more patient with this irritating person at work, and i I just got to try to be a better parent, and i just got to try to be a better son or a daughter, and i just got to try to be a better student. I've just got to try, 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 try. We have to shift from trying harder to focusing more on our rescuer, focusing more on Jesus. Because when we focus our minds and our hearts and our feelings and our reactions on Him, everything about our lives begins to change. And the things we used to have to try really hard to do, they just come easy and natural as organic byproducts because our heart is changing. Instead of trying to do the things we think we should do, even though we don't really desire to do them, I know what I should do with this person, I know what I should do in this circumstance, I guess I'll do it even though I don't really want to. Instead, we get to choose to pursue Jesus more intentionally so that his desire fills our hearts and our thoughts and our thinking and our feelings because then the things that we do, well, they'll actually make an impact. Today, the second shift we need to make is seen right here in in these three verses of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, what we just read. We have to make a shift from more volunteers or more volunteerism to more masterpieces. When you think of the word volunteer... What do you imagine? What do you picture? I'll tell you what I think. Whether it's a volunteer to help run a car wash, you know, fundraiser, or, or it's a volunteer at, at school in some capacity, or a volunteer to coach a sport, a volunteer to hand out pamphlets door to door, or even a volunteer here on a Sunday morning to welcome people at the doors or serve in our Tiny Steps nursery. When I think of a volunteer in our, in our culture, or I think about volunteering myself for something, typically we enter into it in the headspace. We're like, 
all right, this is what, what's the least amount I can do to actually provide for the, what's needed, right? What, 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 what do they need? I'll do that, but, you know, I don't really have to do any more than that. Oftentimes, the, the, the thought of a volunteer is, you know what, I just got to find somebody alive that can do this thing, right? They don't have to enjoy themselves, really. They don't have to want to do it. They don't even have to be very good at it. I just need somebody alive to stand in this spot and do what I need or hand out these things or show up and make sure kids don't set stuff on fire. Like oftentimes that's kind of what we think about with a volunteer role. And, and tell me if this is true. Just tell me. Maybe, I, maybe it's only me, okay? If you've ever volunteered for something and you've watched the clock and when it's finally over and you've, have you ever had this thought? It's like, oh, I'm done. I hope they never ask me to do that again. Your laughter says I'm not alone in that, in that sentiment, right? Or, or you're like, oh, man, good, I don't have to do it again until next month. At least I've got a few weeks off, right? And then it creeps up on you and you're like, wow, where did that month go? It's this time again, right? But really, as long as someone is willing to do it and they're alive and, and they're functional, that's all that's required. In our world, if you manage volunteers, oftentimes you just can be consumed with the number of blank lines you've got in spots that need to be filled. If this has ever been you, you've probably been up at night sometimes being like, I've just got to find 14 more people, 14 more people, then I can sleep at night. And, and if, if I can't find 14 people, then, uh, then my stress level is going to go through the roof. And you've probably gotten those calls asking you, right? Asking you over and over again where they, they call and, and, and you decline the call and, and they don't leave a voicemail, and, but you know who it is. And so they call again and you decline the call again. And, and then this time they leave a voicemail and so you don't want to check it and you don't want to check it and you don't want to check it. And so you end up just deactivating your voicemail thinking, well, maybe if they call again and they're like, ah, oh, something's wrong with their inbox. And, and then you're just like, you know what? They called again. I'm just going to change my number. I'm just going to get a new phone uh, so they can't reach me, right? If we're honest, sometimes people that, that, that work with volunteers and recruit volunteers, we could shift into kind of a nagging rhythm, right? And nagging is an acronym. The N stands for need. I have a need. I've got to get something filled before the next event, before the next time, before the next Sunday, the A stands for annoy. So you've got to annoy people. I'm going to call you, and I'm going to call you again. And if you don't give me a direct no, if you don't get aggressive with me on the phone, I'm probably going to call you the next time, too, when you use the excuse, yeah, we're going to be out of town. Sorry. Or we got something else on the schedule because I've got something I need to fill, and I'm going to... And then you hit them up with the big G, guilt, right? You know, I have a need, and I thought of you, and I mean, you'd just be perfect for this. And, you know, I just, you know, I don't really know who else to turn to. And, and uh, but man, can you just think the impact you would have, like with your gifts and your abilities? I mean, you think how successful this would be with you being a part of it? Now, I'll be the first to admit that sometimes the local church can be guilty of this, acting in this way with the nag approach. We strive at Fusion to, to, to try to engage people in a way that gives permission to say yes or no based on what, what they're passionate about, what they're wired for. But sometimes we could fall into the temptation of, of the nag strategy, especially during COVID. As, as, you know, there's so many people that want to keep distance. And the, so the idea of being in a place and interacting with people can be a little bit nerve-wracking. When you think about the local church, it's probably the largest and most effective volunteer force on the planet. I mean, think about it. What other organization reaches a couple billion people collectively without intercommunication among them across the planet, active in their local communities. And, and it used to be just on Sundays, but now it's, it's every day with the internet. I mean, every day of the week, a couple billion people interconnected in different roles. People are serving in and volunteer, volunteering to connect and engage and teach and, and, uh, 
I mean, what other organization activates as many volunteer hours as the church? So Christians might do a pretty good job of filling a schedule with volunteers whose hearts are rooted in wanting to serve, or who are, whose hearts want to help, who, whose hearts want to make, make needs get met, or, 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 or hearts that understand the scope of the gospel and want to reach people for Christ. But if we're honest, sometimes the way we're motivated, the way that we motivate people can reveal that we don't really see people as God's masterpiece as he says we are in Ephesians 2. But instead, we could kind of tend to look at that volunteer, that person. Well, this is the person I need to keep everything running. See, there's a great conflict here between the idea of volunteerism, which sometimes we say yes to because it makes us feel good, right? I mean, sometimes we say yes to volunteering because, because we feel obligated to do it and we don't know who else is going to. We say yes because we know they need somebody and we are available and we can do it. Or sometimes we say yes because... Just because, you know, it's so rewarding and we like that feeling, that sensation. In all those instances, really, we say yes a lot of times out of a selfish motive. I'll say yes because they're turning to me and it makes me feel good to be needed. Or I'll say yes because it feels good when I'm there. It feels rewarding to get to be a part of this and, and to, to, to serve at the soup kitchen or to show up and hand out food or whatever it is. Or I'll say yes because, you know what, I just, they always ask me and I just don't want them to be disappointed in me and I'm concerned about what they think about me. But in, in all those instances, that yes has more to do with ourself than it does with a calling from God or, 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 or an open door God has opened. Or it has more to do with us than it has to do with the real need and the person that's in need. But see, the conflict comes in that the Bible tells us every follower of Jesus receives a sacred summons that we refer to as a calling. Typically, when we think about the word calling, we, we kind of super spiritualize it, don't we? We tend to think about people that are called to do the most incredible, inspiring things. We think about people that leave their native homeland and learn a new language so they can translate the Bible into that language and they can live in some tribal community and take the gospel to that people. We call them missionaries. And so we super spiritualize this idea of calling. It's like, ah, I've never been called then. Or, or to work in a mission in an urban setting and be with people that are in massive need with a lot of baggage and bondage. We think about people with a kind of a religious emphasis, this idea of calling. But did you realize that every follower of Jesus is a missionary? We're all a part of the mission of God within the body of Christ. A mission of love, a mission of grace, a mission of mercy, a mission of truth. Proclaiming the truth about sin, proclaiming the truth about our separation from God, and the truth that the only hope we have of more in this life is found through Jesus. But we have to make sure we get the mission word second to the masterpiece. We live in a culture that wants to try to present that there's a mission masterpiece in every one of us. That if we give our lives to something, then we can have an impact and be significant. But God flips that around. He says, no, this is who I've created you. You're a masterpiece. This is who you're to be. And in light of who I've created and wired you, there's something else I have for you to do. It's rooted in who you are. You don't have to find yourself. I've designed you. I've created you. I know who you are. Look to me. This means that every follower of Jesus is made to be the unique masterpiece God designed within a healthy biblical community of faith. Every follower of Jesus. And this community of faith is what we know as the church is designed by God. The church is designed, hand-woven by God to be the most inclusive, attractive, dynamic, diverse entity on the planet. L listen as Paul continues. After mentioning we're all masterpieces of God in verse 11, he says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. Don't forget there used to be separation and division. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews. 
I don't know, if somebody calls you an uncircumcised heathen, those are fighting words. There's conflict there. They were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies external and not internally their heart. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, you did not, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. Paul's saying, there used to be, he's saying, there used to be lines drawn between one ethnicity and another, between Jews and Gentiles. And get what Paul's saying here. The scope of it is huge. Jews are those who are genetically linked to Jesus, going all the way back to Moses and Abraham. Gentiles is everybody else. Everybody. Doesn't matter what country you're from. Doesn't matter your nationality. Doesn't matter what color your skin is. Doesn't matter your family of origin. Gentiles is everybody else. So Paul knows there's a lot of other lines between different people groups, but he's going to the highest place. He's saying throughout the Old Testament, the Jews were seen as kind of the people chosen of God, and then there was everybody else. And in Jesus, that line has been disintegrated. The church now exists to be the most inclusive, loving, diverse place on the planet where everybody is accepted and loved where they are, knowing that none of us are where we need to be. We're, on, we're in process of what God wants to do, transforming our lives. Paul's saying there's a new unity being built. But we also have to recognize it started at the same place too. He says in verse 13, he says, Now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. Christ himself has brought peace to the tension and conflict. And what Paul is saying is that peace will not be found any other way. Jesus has to be at the center. He united Jews and Gentiles, the two groups of people that hated each other the most, into one people in his own body on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. This message of true unity is one that our nation is screaming for. It's a message that for so many of us, our hearts beat fast for. We can retrace the history of our society, our nation. For a couple hundred years now, it's constantly continued to bubble to the surface, this idea of unity and equality for anybody, no matter what's on the outside that could differentiate us from one another. Because what's on the inside, all of us are identically the same. We all start at the same place. We're all on the same plane. A human being with a soul that God adores and is willing to lay down his life to redeem. But see, there's a problem in our world and that they don't truly know the road to unity and equality. The only path is a narrow road that leads right through the cross of Jesus Christ. At the foot of the cross is the only place where every man, woman, and child realize how, how we are all identical twins, even though we don't look alike, even though we don't share the same genetics. You know, it's pretty remarkable. When you think about, think about consider the gospel's power to bring us all to the same conclusion. In every other arena of humanity, there's always distinguishing features that reveal what separates us, right? Uh, we often think of skin color. We think of nationality. We think of ethnicity. But, but upbringing separates us. Language we speak, culture we come from, our education level, income levels, family of origin. You know, the, the nature of the home life in which we had growing up. You know, those who grew up with all brothers and those who grew up with all sisters, that's a different upbringing. Those who grew up with mom and dad in the home, only with one parent, or those who grew up as an orphan, those who grew up adopted, all those are different. They separate us, even though we could look identical. Our genetics separate us. But in, but, so God created every human being unique and one of a kind. We'll always find things that differentiate us from one another. And yet the only place, the only place where we all see we're identical 
is before the cross of Jesus. We see that we're all miserably hopeless from ever having a relationship with a holy God unless he makes a way for us to have a chance at redemption. And so Paul, talking to Christians in Ephesus who already believe in faith in Jesus, he's identifying more effort's not going to secure your hope. It's only more Jesus. And you need to understand who you are as a masterpiece. Paul says this, the Jewish law had many commands and rules, over 600 actually, but Christ ended that law. And Paul is specifically referencing here the civil and and the, the ceremonial laws. Those things, the bulk of those over 600 laws, Jesus has fulfilled and he's ended those things. All the, the, the dietary restrictions and the cleansing rituals and the feasts and celebrations, all those kinds of things have ended. Now it's all built on the resurrection. It's all built on unity with us and God and us with one another, no matter what our background is. Jesus upholds the moral law, not only in his life, the way he lived his life, to model for us what a life without sin could be and then give us the power to live that life too, but in his words, Jesus preached specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. He actually took the Ten Commandments and he said, yeah, you guys, you practice them in like a really, really weak way. You need, you need to kind of, you need to elevate things. This is what it's really about. It's about the heart. The heart is what impacts and influences our actions. Paul continues, he said, he made peace between Jews and Gentiles, by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and he reconciled our hostility towards each other. It was put to death. Jesus kills death with his death. He kills hatred with his death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him. And peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. There's no line anymore. You're not outsiders. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. You hear the identity language? This is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. Together we are his house. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Here, Paul is identifying the value of the Old Testament. Everything happening now is built on what's come before. And Jesus himself is the cornerstone. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. The temple of God is our flesh. It's us now. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, God wants us to understand that we are the body of Christ. The fullness of Jesus everywhere in every way. And we, the church, carry Jesus into our community as he fills us, every part of us, with himself. So we can carry him and fill everything in every way. In chapter 2, we hear God has given a unique calling on your life within his family. You have a masterpiece mission. Somewhere in the community you live in, God has a design for you. He has a spot, a place I believe that every need in our communities exists to be met by Jesus, the fullness of everything in every way, through the life of one of his children or many of his children together collaboratively. And he's called us to discover that in relationship to him. Nobody else can speak that into our lives. We can find influence and direction and encouragement. But God has to author that calling in our lives so we can step in and meet the need unlike anyone else could ever meet it. And and the truth is, this mission, more volunteers covering the earth is not going to help creation flourish and meet every need. Because often we watch the clock as a volunteer, like, okay, good, my time's up. When's the next guy going to get here? I thought he was supposed to be here by now, so I can leave. More volunteers isn't going to accomplish this. 
Only more masterpieces can do it. You are made for a masterpiece mission. And the masterpiece has to come first. Who you are in relationship to God. And your masterpiece mission is meant to overlap mine. Which is no better. No greater. And my masterpiece mission is, is meant to, to overlap the person sitting next to you. And the, the person next to you, their masterpiece mission is meant to overlap the person watching at home right now. Whose, whose masterpiece mission is meant to overlap somebody else watching in a completely different house in a different part of, of our county. And there's this beautiful mosaic of masterpiece missions. That's what the church is. And it's the only way a lost world can truly be transformed. It's the only way a culture can truly be turned upside down is through that kind of kingdom force. So what does this ultimately mean? What's the bottom line? I want to challenge you to change a statement that probably comes out of your mouth often as, as a, when you look in the mirror, you use the word just. So do I. Just. And we use it in a way that does not claim the truth of the masterpiece staring back at us. The bottom line is you are not a just anything. You're not just a mom or a dad. You're not just a kid. You're not just a teen. You're not just a, a, a truck driver or delivery driver. You're not just a, a carpenter or a mason or a mechanic. You're not just somebody that has a high school diploma. You're not just someone with some college. You're not just someone with a bachelor's. You're not just someone that has a, a GED. You're not just an ex-con. You're not just an ex-addict. You're not just an ex-whatever. You're not just divorced. You're not just separated. You're not just a single person. You're not just a custodian or a teacher or a nurse. You're a son or daughter of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he put you in this country, in this state, in, in the school district you live in, at this time, in the family that you have with your skills and your passions and your heart and your experiences, with all your successes and all your failures, with the job that you have in the neighborhood that you live, with your boss and your coworkers and your kids' friends connected to their families. And all of that is not an accident. It's God's grand design so you can discover your masterpiece mission that he's calling you to. And it'll set your life on fire with joy and pleasure like nothing else ever can. Because this is the divine heart of God that is calling you, the one who created you and wired you. You were never just a anything, and you'll never be just a anything again. The only thing you were just is at one time you were just a sinner dead and hopeless. Now, you're redeemed, loved, adopted, cherished, reconciled to the king. Everything he has now, he gives to you. You're an heir of the riches of heaven. The fullness of the risen Jesus is filling you everything and everywhere you go. So I want to encourage you to read chapter 2 this week. 22 verses every day. That's it. We just read the whole chapter, by the way. It's not very long. And see what God continues to say to you on that discovery mission. God, what's my masterpiece mission? I don't want to just, I don't want to just be a volunteer in this life and waste it. I have one life to live. I want to be the masterpiece and accomplish the mission you've given me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. We glorify your name. Lord, this message can be a bit overwhelming. Because immediately some of us start to get scared. What does this mean? Well, how am I going to have to step out of my comfort zone? And God, that's, that's true. There's going to be elements of that. But ultimately, the way you've wired us and built us, designed us, the passions we have, what you're calling us to is the greatest joy and the greatest freedom we'll find in our lives. Because it's connected to you and who you are. 
Lord, lead us the next step you have for us to take. For your glory and your name. Amen.